Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who are one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for today, episode 65, is something like, what constitutes good government? For this discussion, we read selections of the Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay, which were originally published as newspaper editorials under the pseudonym Publius between October 1787 and May 1788, all in support of the newly proposed American Constitution. We also read two of the letters by Brutus, one of the most articulate and well-regarded anti-federalists and objector to the proposed Constitution. You can get the text, join the discussion, and read loads of supplemental material at partiallyexaminedlife.com. I'm Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. This is Mark Bensenmeyer in Madison, Wisconsin. And this is Seth Paskin in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Owen in... <laughs> Wes is just taking a break this time. Yeah. Shall we give the ground rules for our discussion? Yes, we can do the ground rules. All right. Dylan, tell us number one. Are you prepared? Yes. Try not to assume that our audience has read anything that we're talking about or has any other background in philosophy or the American founding or that sort of stuff. Or voting. Yes. <laughs> Even though they, in the U.S., they probably took civics if they were in high school and they would have heard of some of this stuff. A whole class called civics. No, I did not have such a thing. You didn't? I had government. We had American history, AP poli sci. Somewhere in there, there was a political philosophy course, although I'm sure it was not called that, and that's where I read The Republic and things like that. But they didn't give us this. However, I was inspired enough by that class that I wrote a treatise for my teacher on how to fix all of the world's problems. Wow. <laughs> Which, just for the hell of it, because I was a dweeb. You weren't a snot-nosed undergrad or anything, were you? <laughs> this is not undergrad. This is junior in high school, I believe. You weren't Maybe a snot-nosed junior in high school, were you? <laughs> I don't think I would have dared do this in an undergrad college setting. And the main point was, if people in a country disagree over stuff, they should just split and make a different country. Wow. Because of that, he gave me a copy of this Federalist Paper number 10 and said, you should read this. Hmm. That's not a good idea what you're proposing. That's an interesting response to that. It is. I'm pretty impressed, actually. <laughs> number two. Don't name drop, just make your point. Don't say, you would understand me if only you'd read Feng Shui for Obsessive Compulsives. Like you have to line up the furniture just so three times every time you enter the room. All right, Seth, you give number three. Number three would be try to be concise and how do we say it? Try rigorous to be and exact. Precise and, and rigorous and exact in all that we say unless doing the opposite would be more entertaining. Very nice. So this is in honor of the election more or less, right? Yeah. Getting all civical. Come on and get civical. 
You guys were just talking about your civics classes. When I can't recall. I know I studied a lot of this stuff. It was just part of the curriculum. I don't recall there being like one class where we were like, oh, and now we learn about government. It just seems like when I was growing up, everything, like there was always every year there was some kind of class where we had to study something about American government. Am I just blurring because I don't recall the details of my childhood? Or did it used to be different? It might have varied from you know place to place. We had, in my high school, one dedicated class called government. That was all separation of powers, who's your congressman, how do bills get passed, stuff like that. Everything that you learned from Schoolhouse Rock. Hmm. Well, I just had this vague recollection of multiple American history, American government type classes over the course of uh, many years. But I also remember very distinctly Schoolhouse Rock being a critical part of my... In fact, I recently put a post up on the blog about the failure of today's youth to be able to accurately use conjunctions and got a little Schoolhouse Rocky on things. Wow. Those of us who do know Schoolhouse Rock know how a bill becomes a law. Yes. But we don't know the Federalist Papers because I don't <laughs> no. believe there was a Federalist... <laughs> No, I think they covered that. I think they, I think they covered uh, the Federalist Papers on a, a special episode of Sesame Street <laughs> with Grover's Alexander Hamilton. Yes, and when, exactly. And when Romney gets elected and gets rid of PBS, there will be no avenue for children to learn the intricacies of all eighty-five essays in the Federalist Papers via Big Bird, the Cookie Monster, and Grover, Bert and Ernie. I want to see Grover have his duel with Aaron Burr and <laughs> shot and die. That's right. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, so sweet. Actually, I was thinking we should substitute for the regular rules this time, the debate rules. Three 15-minute segments, and they'll be divided, and then you'll get to talk for two minutes, and you'll get to talk for two minutes, and I'll try to interrupt and stop you when you're running out of time. And, and let's answer all of the questions that each other asks by saying something slightly irrelevant about a man I met in Ohio who was, had a pet snake who looked very sick. And that pet snake looked up at me, me and said, yes, can you help? Banish the factions. Yes. For people who are listening to this tens, decades in the future, if it's the year 2053 and you're wondering what our obscure references are to, it's the presidential debate between one... Mitt Romney and one Barack Obama, which just recently took place. And they settled it via Schoolhouse Rock. I'm not sure how that works, but... It might have been interesting if they'd settled it via duel, the way Burr and Hamilton did. It'll come to that. <laughs> yeah, that was the good old days when our most highly elected officials had duels to settle their arguments. Well, I did read about the identity of Brutus. Yes, Robert Yates. At least that's the best guess. Yeah, and after this, some years after this, he ran for governor against John Jay, one of the authors of the Federalist Papers, and lost, effectively ending his political career. Yeah, Yates was one of the three guys who was at the Philadelphia Convention from New York, along with Hamilton. And he and the other representative from New York, John Lansing, apparently left in a significant huff, a fury when they found out that the Articles of Confederation were just going to be scrapped, that there wasn't even going to be really given any attention to revising them. They were mightily pissed. Maybe it would make sense at that point, Dylan, to just put a little context around this. Yeah. Like, 
when they were written, or at least what's going on at the time, and why were they written in the first place, and kind of what's happening? Yeah, so this is the end of 1787 and the beginning of the first half of 1788 when the essay, the editorials first appeared. And this is on the heels of the proposal for the American Constitution. The country had been uh, united under the Articles of Confederation for since just after winning or the end of the Revolutionary War. And there were lots of complaints and problems about the Articles of Confederation, in particular that it basically didn't give any power to the federal government at all. So there were things like self-defense and commerce that were really posing a, a problem. And uh, so there was a, a second convention called to deal with that issue. And the outcome of that was the proposed American Constitution, in which there is a much stronger federal government. In fact, there it's a federal government, not a Confederate government. And these essays that were collected as the Federalist were originally newspaper editorials that were written in support of the uh, Constitution. So throughout this time, during the discussion of ratification in the fall of 1787 and through 1788, there was this this very vigorous discussion throughout the colonies and lots of newspaper articles and editorials, both for and against the Constitution. These were written with a plan in mind by Hamilton, Madison, and Jay. They were going to make a long argument. In the end, there were 85 essays in support of the Constitution. And along the way, they fielded some of the uh, objections that were going on by people like Brutus and others, loosely called the Anti-Federalists. And then when the uh, Constitution was ratified by all the colonies, we had a federal government, the Constitution passed, and it might have uh, even been before the complete ratification. I'd have to double check the dates, but the uh, all those essays were gathered together and published you know, in 1788 or something like that as the Federalist. So they're sort of considered the underlying political philosophy argument, at least by the winning side, so to speak. But if you read anything, including the Cambridge edition that I mentioned on the blog, anything about the anti-federalists, and I mean, I think even just reading the essays that we read, you see the way in which the resulting constitution and the kind of arguments that have happened over time uh, really embody them kind of jointly contributing to the discussion. I mean, the Bill of Rights ends up getting included. It's one of the major objections by the Anti-Federalists is there was not an enunciation of specific civil liberties. And that became the Bill of Rights was one way of dealing with that, even though it came up on the heels of the actual original ratification of the Constitution. Which is funny, because I thought so somewhere in here I read that, not one of the ones we read, but that Hamilton argues against specifically against the necessity of a Bill of Rights, that the way the government mm -hmm. set up already protects everybody, and yet Madison actually drafted the damn, <laughs> first drafted the Bill of Rights when it came down to it. So, Yeah, and there were people who were prom prominent, like Thomas Jefferson, you know, I guess technically was a Federalist, but he had significant anti-Federalist leanings. Mm -hmm. You know, Madison was a big proponent of the power of the legislature and also trying to tame it. Hamilton, Hamilton's a big proponent of the power of the executive and commerce. Mm -hmm. And you see both of those themes through, through and through. 
Yeah. Have we explicitly said what a federalist and an anti-federalist is? We haven't said that. A federalist was someone who was in favor of the adoption of the proposed constitution that would generate a federal government uh, that was, even though it was an assembly of states and the states had rights, the federal government would hold final power over it. So you had the establishment of the presidency and the House of Representatives and the Senate and the Supreme Court and ways to make laws of the land and ways for the uh, House of Representatives to raise money and tax and the also the building of uh, a national army. Mm-hmm. Right. They're, they're supposed to each have powers in separate spheres so that we are all each simultaneously citizens of two different governmental entities. Yes. That not, yes. That neither, neither one, you could say, is supreme over the other. They no, both... no, no, that's wrong. <laughs> it's, clear that the, it's clear that the federal government trumps. It's even in the Constitution from the beginning. Not in all areas. No. The federal government, for instance, can't tell the states, according to what I was seeing in these documents, yes. how to you know, run their criminal justice system, for instance. That's true. And that, that has persisted today. You know, there, there's a whole separate court system for federal law versus state law. And, you know, there are things that sort of seem weird, but that are a result of this, you know, the individual state commerce, you know, every state has its own insurance laws and its own ways of certifying uh, a professional, like things like being a lawyer and having a bar and stuff like that. That's all done by states. I guess what I meant by saying that the federal government trumps is that with this document, there is one government with parts that have activities underneath it that have things separate from them, but it is much, much stronger of a, of a unified arrangement than the Articles of Confederation ever were. Mm-hmm. But it is useful to contrast this with, say, the British system where you know the, fed- the central national government could pretty much creates the entities under it for its own convenience of executing the law. Yes. You know, so they could get rid of your local mayor or something, I guess, if it came to that, because they're ultimately appointing those people, whereas that's not the way it works here. That That's the way that the, the relation between, say, states and counties, right? States create counties, even though county, you know, you local, you vote for your own local county board person, for instance, or even your local mayor. Those entities are for sure under state jurisdiction, whereas states are not under national jurisdiction in the same way. They're not. And and this exact point has been a source of great controversy throughout the history of the U.S., right? I mean, mm-hmm. ignoring the Civil War, there's the whole uh, civil rights era and the you know cases of the federal government saying that certain laws were being violated that were federal laws, even though the states had made them. I guess that's what I mean by state laws that the federal government trumps is that there there are spheres of work that the states have lots of latitude in, but it's it's not allowed that the states can have laws that are unconstitutional. They have mm-hmm. they have got to a, that's part of the deal is that they abide by the constitution. Well, wasn't it a, wasn't it a, an advance say that the states had to obey the Bill of Rights as well? I'm just reaching back to my U.S. history. Well. I mean, once the Bill of Rights was part of the Constitution, then the states would have to follow the, that as well. See, I thought that was actually a further amendment after that or something that states had to... 
there's an amendment in the Constitution. We should be careful, right? We, we call them amendments to the Constitution, but they are the Constitution then, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. There is one of them that says that that the states retain all rights for themselves that are not enumerated explicitly in the Constitution. It would be useful or at least expedient to kind of characterize what it means when we say that we what we had was a loose confederation of yep. states. Mm-hmm. The details are important in this case where we had recently, you know, won our independence from the realm and from the king. And there was a this the states had joined together under the Articles of Confeder- uh, Confederation. Yes. Is that right? Yep. And so we were we were essentially kind of an alliance of independent states that were attempting to deal with a number of very important issues, both domestic and foreign, with respect to foreign policy, with respect to trade, with respect to interstate commerce. There were a lot of different things. And there was a, you know, there was this sort of loose delineation between the states, north and south, one more focused on agriculture, one more focused on manufacture. And really what what we have is a disagreement or we have uh, a debate about what's the right way for these states to come into confederation and the federalist papers and federalism in general uh, is a movement that's saying that uh, a, a confederation of equal states that simply respect each other's authority is not sufficient for accomplishing what we need to accomplish in a union as a as a government and then the anti-federalist position is no states that are allied in this this confederation can find a way to manage manage the the business of running a country effectively and so it, it's it's important to me anyway that we note that the entity of the state or the 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 fact that we have these 13 independent states is very critical to this debate not just in how the states come together under a federal system but also with respect to what we're going to see about conversations around federalism versus nationalism and this idea of democracy versus a republic. Yeah. I just found uh, on Wikipedia under incorporation of the Bill of Rights, it's the process by which American point, American courts have applied portions of the U.S. Bill of Rights to states. Prior to the 1890s, the Bill of Rights was held only to apply to the federal government. Oh, that's what you're thinking of. I didn't yes, understand. Was, I didn't understand. Beginning in the 1920s, a series of Supreme Court decisions interpreted the 14th Amendment to incorporate most portions of the Bill of Rights, making these portions for the first time enforceable against the state governments. So really, other than distinguishing the state responsibilities from the national responsibilities, federal responsibilities, there was no concern in this process of the Federalist Papers of protecting citizens from the states. Ah. Yeah, we should be a little bit careful about this because the understanding of the development of the Constitution and uh, changes in the way we understand federal government evolved over time. And again, Mm -hmm. the biggest deal would be the prelude and then the outcome of the American Civil War, which is a kind of refounding in some important ways. And so we should just be careful not to gloss 200 years into <laughs> exactly what is in this. And I think that's a good point, Mark, that the Bill of Rights here ends up being part of protecting people as members of the federal government. 
but not necessarily with respect to their states. Mm -hmm. But clearly, the discussion of why a big state is better than a small state, in other words, why we should have the national government in the first place, has as one of its expressed purposes that in small states, it's easier for the minority to get oppressed because the smaller number of people, they can more easily get together and make a majority even of 51% and come up with some evil plans to screw with the, with the rest of the populace. Whereas in a larger group, according to Hamilton, I believe, it's just not going to be logistically feasible to do that. Certainly when I was reading these arguments through here, I was reflecting on, as one would naturally do at this point, how good the logic is given changes in transportation, communication, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And just things that they historically did not foresee that, oh, it, certainly we won't have problems with factions in a larger state like that. It's the same argument I was just considering that he just didn't think that majorities in a state as large as ours would really be a problem. Whereas I see that. <laughs> There are a lot of assumptions in here related both to the disposition of people as well as technology, mm -hmm. that color. It's one of the things that's kind of a pet peeve of mine is when politicians and Supreme Court justices make decisions based on the technology of the day. As a point of reference in one of the essays, I'm not quite sure which, Hamilton delineates the square mileage of the existing states and says, well, you know, it's so many hundreds of miles wide by so many hundreds of miles long and nothing, you know, should prevent people from being able to get from even the farthest reaches of this to a central place in order to be able to do the representation that they need to do. So we shouldn't really worry about that. And he says, even if there's more states that are created, it should be okay. Clearly thinking in of riding a horse and being no further west than the Mississippi. Well, not even that far. The Appalachian Mountains. <laughs> <laughs> well, he actually says that the land anyway at the time is all the way to the Mississippi, even yes. if there were no states at the time. Sure, sure. But it's just one of those things where you say like, okay, if you're going to stand on that argument, and it's probably expedient at the time, but from a philosophical point of view, hitching your horse to whatever happens to be possible at the time that you're riding is not always the best mm -hmm. stance to take. One thing that's interesting about these is that they're live editorials at the time, and they are intended yeah. explicitly to be persuasive. While there's clearly political philosophy going on, or at least an articulation of a particular political philosophy going on, it's not um, necessarily rumination, but an articulation of a particular point of view. I mean, they're proponents, and they have at sometimes even relatively explicit underpinnings of an interpretation of human nature and what the nature of good government is and what the relationship between liberty and good government ought to be and what the remedies are in a founding of a government for that. Well, let me ask you a question then. If these were published in a popular format mm -hmm. and they were intended to be persuasive to the relevant voting populace at the time, how should we or should we not interpret them as philosophical documents? Is it the same thing as saying, okay, well, let's take a look at this presidential debate, which was televised four days ago, and interpret that as a philosophical statement? Or is it as it clearly was intended to sway voters as opposed to state something based on, you know, rigorous principles? One of the reasons why you would expect that there would be more philosophical content to this kind of discussion, whether it 
happen to be, you know, in 1787 or even today is that it's at the beginning of something, right? They're constructing the government itself. So they're having to have these discussions about what the shape of the government ought to be and what the goal is and what the goal ought to be and come up with some arguments for why it ought to be that way and all that stuff. Yeah, that's our perspective from now. Mm -hmm. But I guess what I'm asking is, are we giving them too much credit? Do we defer too much to the vision and authority and principles of the founding fathers and lend too much credence to this? Could it possibly be that they're just engaging in the same kind of rhetoric that we see nowadays? We have the sense of that we now live in kind of a devolved era. The Washingtons and the Madisons and all that stuff were somehow different from us. I'm just curious. I wasn't trying to make the founding fathers cast as giants among men argument. <laughs> I wasn't trying to make that argument. I was saying that there is, I think, naturally going to be more philosophical disposition in this kind of discussion, just because it's at the beginning of something. Ah, okay. Okay. That's fair. It's also rhetorical in that a lot of this was responding to specific arguments that had been raised. And so it's yes. really just trying to give all the possible responses to these. So I wouldn't expect a completely consistent and coherent set of responses because, you know, think about if you're just somebody has a position, you're just trying to think of all the ways to cut them down and why your position is better. I mean, that's not a recipe for a Leibnizian step-by-step -step philosophical treatise. That is more of a rhetorical creation. And certainly there are enough papers in here that I would expect things to be coming from some slightly different angles here and there. It's arguing to an audience of revolutionaries, right? The Revolutionary mm -hmm. War was 10 years before. These were all people that thought revolution was a legitimate reaction. So while you don't want to actually have, like, in the Bill of Rights, a right to rebel, because that's sort of beside the point. You would be overthrowing the law. You don't need a law that says, okay, to overthrow the law. But as a rhetorical device, these people wanted to believe that, uh, yeah, if things go badly, we'll be in a position to smash it all down. And uh, I got to think given what else Hamilton had to say, how concerned he was throughout these of having a stable government, that that's not actually something that he wanted to happen. You know, he wanted a, a system that would control, even if a bad ruler was in power, would give us, you know, legal means to get rid of them and not just make revolution easier. Mm -hmm. Well, given that, there's still some very coherent arguments in the ones we read. Do we want to just start Absolutely. going through, say, number 10? That's a good one. It's pretty short. Let's read some chunks of it. So if we just start at the second paragraph, he defines what he's talking about. By faction, I understand a number of citizens, whether amounting to a majority or a minority of the whole, who are united and actuated by some common impulse of passion or of interests, averse to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community. Interest groups is what we would call them pretty much now. And he certainly had in mind class disputes that he did not like the idea of all the laborers getting together and all the, the nobles getting together and fighting <laughs> politically. Well, he saw it as something that they had to protect against because yes. he expected that that would happen. He wants to keep the evil things that can result of this, which I think the evil things are just the government will be unstable, right? It's, yeah. We don't want things to get to a point of revolution. That's right. And we want it to flourish. One of the things specifically cited is you don't want all the poor people getting together and taking the rich people's property and redistributing it because the rich would react violently. It's not just that it's unjust or something like that. It's that this would make things horribly unstable. 
there's something about that going on right away when in the next couple of paragraphs, he says, you know, look, you can get rid of the causes of faction by destroying liberty, which is clearly not desirable. So we'll keep liberty, even though it's dangerous, because it's basically throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Nor can you give every citizen the same opinions, the same passions, and the same interests. Right. Yes. Yep. I just want to make one point about this concept of a faction, Mark, that differentiates a little bit. It's not just about revolutionary factions. It's also about special interests. You don't necessarily have to be a revolution, but it could be... This comes up later on, you know, manufacturing versus agriculture or Mm -hmm. what he's saying is that we have this desire. We have this need to have a system in place where a group that has only their own self-interest and a very narrow self-interest at heart, that we can control that, whether they are the majority or the minority. And there's some issues around the majority a little later on. But on that same page, I'm going to read a little bit more. As long as the reason of man continues fallible, and he is at the liberty to exercise it, different opinions will be formed. As long as the connection subsists between his reason and his self-love, his opinions and his passions will have a reciprocal influence on each other, and the former will be objects to which the latter will attach themselves. Finish that whole paragraph. The diversity in the faculties of men from which the rights of property originate is not less an insuperable obstacle to a uniformity of interest. The protection of these faculties is the first object of government. I went ahead and did a little Socratic kind of syllogistic logic approach to this and tried to figure out, and it says, okay, reason is fallible. Man is free to exercise it. Self-love is connected to reason, and passion is connected to self-love. So passions will always drive reasons when men are free to exercise it at liberty. I think what what he's trying to say is government should have the function to check the power of, let's call it, reason, strengthened self-interest exercised through liberty. (laughs) You say government should check that. But in this case, that's government with a small g. That is, the very structure of the government ought to be made such that that is checked. It's, yes. not, it's mm-hmm. not that you have government with a big G who's going to come in and break up the bullies and the different factions on the field. It's that the structure of the way in which the government itself operates will be a throttle on that. Absolutely. If it was the first method, it would be that curing the by removing yes. the cause. Yes. We don't yes. we don't want government to make everybody think the same thing and put fluorides in the water or whatever it is to control our thought processes. <laughs> is that what that does? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a scientist. But uh, it's rather that the structure of government should be such that factions cannot exercise their power to gain control of the government and overthrow it. And how that's actually going to work is a whole nother question. Yeah. So it's acknowledging that people will knowingly and rightly, because they're guided by self-love, either individuals or as groups, try to do what's in their self-interest and essentially saying that's okay. (laughs) Yeah. But we need to have a situation in which no one of them sort of goes hog wild. Otherwise, that's going to cause problems in general. It will be against liberty. Yes. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. 
You can purchase a full episode at our store page, get it by supporting us through Patreon, or become a partially examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support.